Let me read for us our passage this evening. Our title is set from uh, verse 2 in chapter 4 to the end. Let me read for us from verse 18 in chapter 3, just to get a bit more of the flow of the text. This is Colossians chapter 3, from verse 18 to the end. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service, as people pleases, but sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant of the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that you may encourage your hearts. And with them, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you that everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of a circumcision among my fellow workers of the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling in your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. On whence letter has been read among you, how it's also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Be blessed to us this evening. Let me open in prayer. Facing a task and finish that drives us to our knees, the knees that undiminished repeats our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee, renew before thy throne, the solemn pleasure of thee to go and make thee known. May we do this this evening, Father, as we read from your word, as we hear from you by your spirit through your word. May we be motivated to live a life of mission, driven out by the grace of ensuring Christ and fullness we have. In him. May you be glorified in all that's said this evening. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ our King. Amen. Just a bit of recap for those of us who perhaps weren't here last week. What we saw last week was Neil showing us how our relationship with Christ 
is lived out in our relationship with others. We saw how our vertical relationship rules our horizontal relationships. Then Neil showed us how Paul worked his relationships out in the church, in the home, in the workplace. And today we see the final relationship where it's worked out. And this is relationship with our non-Christian friends. That's what we're going to see in verses 2 to 6 this evening. Now as we go on in verses 7 to 18, we're going to see Paul tie all the various ends of the letter together and show us a living example of what it looks like to live in Christ. And he calls the church in Colossae to stick with me. But first let's look at his final relationship. And Paul calls us to do two things, to pray about the gospel and to speak about the gospel. Let's look at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I think it's a striking, this verse. The first thing Paul calls us to do in our relationship with non-Christians is to pray. Not just one-off prayer, but devoted prayer, steadfast prayer, persevering prayer. This is the first step Paul gives us towards effective evangelism. And if the Christians in Colossae wanted to see their city, see their friends' lives transformed by coming to know Christ, it began with prayer. As we said, the gospel in Britain is greater than it has ever been in the last 450 years. Well, this year marks quite a significant anniversary in Scotland. 500 years ago, John Knox was born, the great Scottish reformer. And I don't know much about John Knox at all. I think we learn a lot from him, though, about evangelising this nation. One of the few things I know about Knox is that he really grasped what it meant to pray about evangelism, to pray about the gospel. It was said by the minister Charles Spurgeon that when John Knox went upstairs to plead for Scotland, that is, when John Knox went to pray, it was the greatest event in Scottish history. Not what he did, but rather beginning it in prayer, not because of who he was, but because of who it was he was talking to. Evangelism begins with steadfast prayer. Our relationships with non-Christians begin with steadfast, continued, devoted prayer. But notice in verse 2, how does it to be done? Well, let's be watchful in it. Watchful in, in what we pray about and watchful in how we pray. <coughs> Think about the church here in Colossae, there's all sorts of false teachings coming into the church. They should be careful that what they were praying about was true. They have to be careful in their experiences in prayer were biblical, were true. And that's the same for us as well today. We have to be careful that we really grasp what prayer is. That's us speaking to God. We must be careful, watchful, sorry, in how we pray. If I'm honest, I often fall asleep when I'm praying in the evenings. I mean, what does that tell me about my view of prayer, if I'm honest? Well, I've got a low view of prayer. I've got a low view of who God is. But look at the end of verse 2. I've got to pray with thanksgiving. We've seen that theme run right throughout the letter, that we ought to pray and be thankful all the time that we have the fullness of Christ. I actually think it's great that we are allowed to rejoice in the gospel. That we are to go before our Father in prayer and cry out, thank you for what we have in Christ. 
Isn't it great that we can do this, that we can come in prayer meetings with others on our own before God our Father and just cry out, thank you. Yeah, quite often, myself, I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like especially being thankful about the Christian life. I think if I was to only pray when I felt like it would be in times of need or crisis. So like you, I would love to be a person of steadfast prayer. And how do you go about that? Well, discipline, I think it's obvious to know that. I'm just lazy. But notice in verse 2 that prayer and thanksgiving go hand in hand, one feeling the other. Our prayer fuels our thanksgiving, and our thanksgiving fuels our prayer. But what do the Colossians pray for in particular? Look at verse 3 to 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I make it clear just how I ought to speak. Paul asked the Colossian church to pray for his preaching. I love this line here, to pray that he may make it clear. He wants the church to, to pray that he doesn't fudge it, that he doesn't water it down. He asks them to pray that what he says is true and it's able to be understood. And it's encouraging that we aren't alone worrying about these sorts of things. Paul worries about it also. But notice in particular, though, that he's praying for opportunities to come up where he can declare the mystery of Christ. Which is, in fact, the very reason that he is in prison. Paul doesn't ask him to pray for to be let out of prison. I think he can do that on his own, you just have to stop preaching the gospel. Instead, he asks for people to pray for chances to come up where he is for him to proclaim the gospel. Let's remember, he's in prison, he's locked up, he's in chains, yet although he is in chains, he knows that the gospel is never bound. The Colossians were to pray for Paul preaching, and Paul was to preach. I think we also are to pray for those whom God has evidently called to preach. For those who are to declare the mystery of Christ. But the only way the bolted doors of the hearts of people can be blown open is by the Spirit of God through His Word. And myself or anyone giving a talk to spend hours crafting a faithful talker, persuasive talk. But without the Spirit of God, it is only their own mere words. For only the Holy Spirit can make a preacher's declaration effective in opening the eyes of unbelievers. So let's pray for that, pray for that to happen. That's exactly what we do before the services, we pray for that very thing to happen. The Colossians were to pray for Paul preaching, and Paul was to preach. And I really hope that there's some people here who getting a little bit frustrated, thinking, well, I'm not Paul, I'm not, I'm not a preacher, I don't stand up and do evangelistic talks, yet I know that I'm supposed to share the gospel with people. What, what's that about? How does that fit into this craig? Well, I think Paul agrees with you, agrees with your frustrations. We are to pray about the gospel and also to speak about the gospel. Look with me, verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to so you know you may know how you ought to answer each person. Notice at the end of verse 4, we Paul asked him to pray for how he ought to speak. 
And T wanted to pray for how the Christian Colossians ought to answer. As Paul is seeking opportunities to stand up and to declare the gospel openly, the Christians in Colossae were to pray for how they best respond to their friends, respond to their questions. I think there's some really encouraging things here in these two verses. This Paul gives us some sanity and some realism in our evangelism day to day. Do you think Paul expects these Christians in Colossae to be standing up in their staffing and work and giving an evangelistic talk? I don't think he expects their Facebook status every time to be a three-point evangelistic sermon. That's just weird. And also, it's very alienating to people as well. Rather, we ought to be ready to respond to the opportunities that arise each day. What a relief that is, that that Paul doesn't expect us to stand up in our workplace and give an evangelistic sermon every day. This might look like someone asking me simply, what do you believe? What a great opportunity that is for us to say, well, let me show you what I believe. Let's go for coffee once a week, let's go for lunch once a week, and let me just read a gospel with you. One hour, that's all. Or when someone asks you what you got up to on a Sunday, just be honest with them and say, why well, is it church? There's this weird thing, maybe it's just me anyway. When someone asks me what I did on a Saturday, I'll be honest and say, well, Perhaps I was playing golf, I was playing golf in the morning, front line was great, back line's a bit awkward, and then I went to watch the football in the evening, and then Brazil went to shootout, and it was great football. When someone comes to ask me what I do on Sunday, I feel awkward about it. I think, oh, well, it's a church. I think, just be honest with them, they ask you a question, be honest facts, they say, well, it's a church. I learned more about Jesus, I learned how great he was. I spent time with friends drinking coffee with them, I went for lunch with them. It was a really, really great day. It's not weird to respond to someone honestly when they ask you a question. That's normal. That's what Paul's getting at here. We ought to answer each person. Let's remember, though, what we've seen over the last few, few weeks with the radical, countercultural way of life for the Christian. When our union with Christ is reflected in our relationships, should we not really expect people to notice that we are different? Rather than forcing opportunities, we ought to respond to openings when they come up. <coughs> we ought to walk in wisdom, that's what the first five says here. It doesn't advocate always being overcautious because, as it says, we ought to make the best use of time available. When we go to share the gospel with people, though, I think it's always important to remember that. The gospel should have been. So let's not add our offense to the offense of the gospel. We ought to live wisely and talk graciously. That's our life, our families, our wholehearted service to our employer and our treatment of our employees all tell the Christ and have a cleansing and preservative influence on the outsider and on society as a whole. This is what Paul means here in terms of being salt. Gracious conversation, seasoned with salt, will usually cause questions. People get a taste of the gospel. They want more of it. Perhaps, like me, this is quite terrifying at the same time. There's areas of Christian belief or behaviour which we just really don't want people to ask us about. Well, a good idea for us might be to, to, to perhaps read some more books. Use some good Christian books and resources to help us answer these questions. 
the minister and Dick Lucas, the former minister from St. Helens Gate, St. Helens Bishop Gate, sums up these two verses very nicely with the titles. We speak to God about others and we speak to others about God. We only dwell on those two things. We speak to God about others and we speak to others about God. But striking that is exactly what Jesus Christ does. He speaks to God about others by interceding on their behalf. And he speaks to others about God by revealing the Father through his word by the Holy Spirit. Our work in day-to-day Christian life is united with Christ's work. Because you are in him and he is in you. So what does it look like for us then tomorrow? It wasn't mean for us to go out, we saw a few weeks ago, and look at chapter 3, to go with our mindset and things that are above. As we do that and go to work or play golf or whatever it is you're doing. But go out, having set our minds on things above, go, why am Jesus guy here? Perhaps some of us who are going to work tomorrow are really not looking forward to it. Perhaps my help is thinking, going, why am Jesus guy here? He's here with me. I need to speak to, to God about others. I need to pray for them. I need to speak to others about God. Use those opportunities that come up to share the gospel with them. We pray about the gospel and we speak about the gospel. Then we look down at our final section here, verses 7 to 18. It looks a lot like staccato sayings to you individuals, instructions to them all. But here's the set of beginning, Paul's going to practically apply the letter to the church in Colossae, and he's going to tell them to stick with me. But before we carry on, we start this letter ten weeks ago, maybe, and quite a lot has happened since then. So I think it would be helpful for us to have a quick overview of the letter Testing back to you, chapter 1, that we have Paul perhaps to look there. And Paul begins in chapter 1 by telling us who Christ is and what he has done. That he is sufficient for Christian maturity. That Jesus is fully God and we are fully in him and he is fully in us. And that is fully fantastic news for us in our Christian day to day life. And in chapter 2, Paul defends that idea against five misunderstandings that are there in the church which undercut this truth that we are fully in Christ, that we are the wholeness of him. And so he gives five separate warnings in this chapter against this teaching. Perhaps you want to listen to these again, listen to uh, Andy Buck and Andy Robson preaching this section. And beginning in chapter 3, coming down to chapter 4, verse 6, Paul begins to apply this truth that believers are complete in Christ. and shows what it looks like in our lives, in the church, in the home, in the workplace, and as we see in our relationships with non-Christians. Now Paul's going to bring that to a close and encourage the church to stick with me. With that in mind, let me read for us verses 7 to 18 again. Verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I sent him to you for his very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything that's taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark because of Rabbis, 
sorry, Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. They have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in the Odyssey and in Hierapolis. Look, the beloved physician greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at the Odyssey and to Nympha and the church in her house. On when this letter has been read among you, have it also read the church of the, of the Odysseans, and see that you also read the letter from the Odyssey. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfil the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write and speaking with my own hands. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's go through and look at the different sections here of people. Let's look at verses 7 to 9. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. I've sent him to you so you may know how we are and so he can encourage your hearts. He and Onesimus will tell you of everything that's taking place. That's basically what Paul's saying as, as those verses summarize. He wants the Christians in Cosmos to know what all he's been doing and just how much he cares for them. And as he's doing so, he's also wanting to build up the link he has with his church as well. Flip back a page and look at the first five, five verses of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, For I want you to know how great, how great a struggle I have for you and for those out there this year. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that the heart may be encouraged to be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understandings and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. I mean, Paul's doing in chapter 4 exactly what he said he'd do in these verses here. He wants to remind the Christians of the fullness they already have in Christ. And take this and Nessus be the ones who tell them all this. Paul says that on my team, they're on our team. Listen to them. These guys bring my message, so listen to them. And look down at verses 10 to 11 where he's some other guys on Paul's team. Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. But the key here in this street is verse 11. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers of the kingdom of God. May they be a comfort to me. To help us understand this, perhaps glance back at verses 11 and 15 of chapter 2. We can imagine here the false teachers in Colossae saying, All the keen Christians get circumcised to show that they're serious about following Jesus. But Paul's having none of it. Since you don't have to do that, look at the guys with me. Only a few of them are circumcised. You don't do that, you don't do anything harsh to your body to show that you are a Christian. In your conversion, you were circumcised, you were buried with Christ, you were raised with Christ. That has already happened, you are already with Christ. You don't need to do anything else. Look by seeing who's all with me, says Paul. Stick with me. Then look at verses 12 to 13. That's really strong endorsement from Paul here of Epaphras. Just look at it here, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, 
greeting, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, for bearing witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. In why Paul wanted the doors of Paphos just so strongly? Well, because it was a Paphos who originally brought the gospel to Colossae, the same way he planted this church. And what we see from implications that false teachers say, yeah, Paphos is fine, but basic though. Come listen to us, we're advanced tires. Yet Paul says in chapter 1, verse 7 of Epaphras that he has no fear that Epaphras has failed him. And so these Christians here shall have no fear that he will fail them. So looking at Acts' description in verse 12, he loves the Christians in Colossae. He's struggling for them, he's working hard, he's labouring for them, just like Paul is in chapter 1. See, Epaphras didn't look flashy. But he was faithful, and this is why he was commended so highly. Paul's encouraging Christians, don't get sucked into that mad stuff from wise sounding people. Stick with the gospel taught from gospel workers. And true gospel workers, they suffer, they work hard, that's just what they look like. If you want fullness church in Colossae, follow this guy. He doesn't look flashy, but he's faithful. He's faithful to the gospel and he's faithful to you. These remarks of a Christian leader follow these types of leaders. And then we've got quite an exception here, verses 13 to 16. We've got a whole group of people here in different places. Again, look at last verse, verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, I was also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read letters from the Odyssey. Paul saying, sort letters with the church. The same gospel they're getting taught. The same gospel all over the globe. It isn't just you struggling away on your own. Turn to chapter 1, verse 6. It says, The gospel which has come to you has been the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. You aren't alone in this work, you Christians in Colossae. You're part of one great big gospel church. Stick with me, says Paul, in my teaching. Don't listen to anything else. That stuff's not growing. It's my gospel, the one that I'm proclaiming, that is. There's one gospel for the world. There's one gospel for the church. And if someone comes along and says that you've misunderstood something, that they've unlocked a secret, that we've been misunderstanding something for thousands of years. We should be questioning that. There are no secrets in the gospel. There is no higher level of Christianity. Paul says, stick with me and my gospel. Perhaps it could be helpful for some of us to read some books from some of the giants of the Christian faith and see the fact we proclaim the same gospel they did thousands of years ago. That same apostolic teaching Paul claimed here has gone on and on and on and on. Because there's one gospel for the world, there's one gospel for the church, and there's one church for the world. And there's one gospel that Paul proclaims, and he says to the church here, stick with me. We don't move on from that gospel, that's the gospel that Paul taught. Let's close our time though by looking at verse 18, this final verse here in the letter. 
As Paul says farewell to us, and we say farewell to him, remember here that he is a suffering servant the gospel of Christ. For like Christ, he himself is suffering. But he's a suffering servant who is free in all the fullness of Christ. For he is in Christ, and Christ is in him. Although Paul is bound by chains, he knows that the gospel is never bound. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this letter of Colossians. We thank you for the encouragement it's been as we realize more and more that we are in Christ and He is in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So help us to dwell today to meditate upon this truth, to set our minds on Christ and things above. May that vertical relationship with Him rule our horizontal relationships with others. As we think especially about and our relationship with non-Christians, our relationship with the world. Help us to be a people to begin in prayer. A people who know that we can do nothing, but you can do everything. So help us to be people of steadfast prayer, praying for our friends and also for our country and for the world. Then may you give us opportunities to share the gospel of work. May you power us by your Holy Spirit to speak. Give us wisdom, help us be gracious, help us ease our time well, and may our speech always be seasoned with salt. Then help us to stick with Paul, stick with his teaching, and to follow those leaders who he describes here like Epaphras, whose gospel works to proclaim his gospel. We ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.